Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jacob came from a special family. After what happened at the Tower of Babel, God set his love on Abraham and his family. Out of all the families of the earth, he was chosen by God. The Lord established a special relationship with Abraham and his descendants. He promised to make him into a great nation, to give him the land of Canaan as his inheritance, and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Last time we saw how when Jacob was fleeing from his home and family, the Lord reaffirmed his great promises to him in that dream about a ladder reaching into heaven. Jacob came from a family chosen by grace. And yet at the same time, his family was all messed up. Abraham took Sarah's maid as wife to raise up an heir, creating jealousy between Sarah and her. Ishmael and Isaac did not get along. Isaac and Rebekah each had a favorite son that they doted on. Jacob deceived his father to get the blessing that normally went to the eldest son. Esau was so mad at him, he made plans to kill him. The result was that Jacob was fleeing from home and traveling to his uncle Laban's place. Already before our text begins, we see that although chosen by grace, Jacob's life was filled with brokenness. Is that not also how it often is in our lives, beloved? We are the covenant people of God. We've been chosen by grace and promised all God's glorious riches in Jesus Christ. You would think that the result would be that we would live holy and happy lives in God's service. That our lives would be characterized by comfort, peace, joy, and hope. But is that the reality of your life? Or do you experience some of the brokenness that comes on many in this fallen world? Many of us live messy lives. Our hearts are often chasing the wrong things. We strive for success or love or happiness. Yet when we make these things the goal of our lives, we're often bitterly disappointed. It is not wrong to seek God's blessing on your life. Who doesn't want to see their hard work blessed with success? Who doesn't desire love in life? Don't you want to be happy? The problem is that these things can become idols. They can become more important than God. Then we run into problems. Then we set ourselves up for great disappointment. 
only when our lives are focused on God and his glory that we'll ever experience true joy and contentment in life. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. In the midst of the messiness of our lives, the sovereign Lord accomplishes his purposes. We'll consider our striving for happiness and God's work of blessing us. As we read through Genesis 29, it seems like God is absent. It's not until verse 31 that we come across the first mention of the Lord's name. Genesis 29 tells us much about the further development of Jacob's life. After fleeing home, he came to the land of the people of the east. He happens to meet some shepherds who are from Haran, the place where his mother Rebekah's family was from. He meets Rachel and helps her water her flock. Laban welcomes him into his home. After working for him a month, Laban wants to negotiate terms for Jacob's continued service. There are three main characters in our text, Laban, Jacob, and Leah. Each of them has their own wants and desires. Laban wants to get rich. He sees Jacob as a good means to achieve his goals. He sees Jacob as a hard worker, a good manager, and a cheap source of labor. Jacob has met Rachel, and he is in love. He is willing to work hard to pay the bride price for her. Leah Laban's older daughter is used by her dad to deceive Jacob. She desperately desires the love of her husband. She seeks it through bearing children for him. Three main characters, each striving after his or her own wants and desires. Each taking God for granted in their push for success and happiness trampling one another to advance their own agendas. Our text begins with Laban negotiating with Jacob about what his wages should be. Laban tells him, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? It sounds like Laban is being generous. Yet, as the story will make clear, Laban is a master at manipulation. He has already had a month of free labor from Jacob. He realizes Jacob is a hard worker. He should do something to keep him around. So he asks him what it would take to employ him. Laban does this from a position of strength. Verse 13 says that when Laban first brought Jacob into his home, Jacob told him all these things. When Abraham's servant had come seeking a wife for Isaac, he came with camels loaded with great riches. But Jacob came to Laban empty-handed. Laban wanted to know why. It appears that Jacob told him the story about how he had come to Haran, fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him. 
It seems likely that Laban discovered that Jacob didn't have any financial assets, that he was at his mercy. Laban also realized that Jacob was in love with his daughter, Rachel. In most families, someone like Jacob would be welcomed in as a kinsman. And if he married, then as a son. But Laban doesn't do that. He doesn't treat Jacob as a kinsman. Instead, he takes advantage of Jacob's poverty and of his love for his daughter. Laban doesn't offer Jacob a decent deal to work for him. Instead, he gets Jacob to propose what the terms should be. Before Jacob could do that, the narrator of the story raises the suspense by informing us that Laban had two daughters. The older was Leah, the younger, Rachel. Our text tells us something about each. It says Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. This verse has often been misunderstood. What does it mean that Leah had weak eyes? Some commentators like to suggest that Leah had weak eyesight. But that explanation does not work. Note the comparison that's made between Leah and Rachel. The text does not say that Leah had weak eyes, but that Rachel could see a long way. It says that Leah's eyes were weak, but that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. The point should be plain. Perhaps Leah's eyes protruded. Perhaps she was cross-eyed. But there was something with her eyes that marred her physical beauty. What our text is telling us is that Leah was the ugly duckling, ugly duckling while Rachel was the swan. Leah was unattractive, while Rachel was gorgeous. Jacob noticed that. Our text says that Jacob loved Rachel. In that culture, if you wanted to marry, it was custom to pay a bridal price. But Jacob had no money to pay the bride price to marry her. So Jacob offers Laban seven years of labor in order to be allowed to marry his younger daughter, Rachel. Commentary suggests that this was a high price to pay, more than would normally be paid as bride price. It speaks to the fact that Jacob truly wanted Rachel as his wife and how Laban cleverly manipulated Jacob. Laban appears to agree with this proposal. But note, he didn't actually say yes. He said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Please note what actually happens here. Greedy Laban takes advantage of Jacob. He's willing to sell off one of his daughters to get free labor for seven years. We see that smooth-talking Laban reduces Jacob to a lowly laborer under contract. He doesn't treat him as a kinsman 
or as a future son-in-law. The relationship between Laban and Jacob is one of an oppressive master over an indentured servant paying off a bride price. What makes Laban act in such a manner? Why doesn't he treat Jacob decently? The problem is that he is greedy and that he has, not, that he has a wonderful opportunity to get ahead in life by taking advantage of this poor relative who came to stay with him. Laban is not all that unique in his approach to business. He wants to be successful. He's willing to do what's necessary to get ahead in life. Aren't we sometimes like that too, beloved? Have you never taken advantage of someone to advance your own success? Isn't it at times easy to trample over others to get what we want? Are we all at times guilty of doing this? Yet, beloved, manipulating others and taking advantage of them is wrong. It's wrong on several levels. It displays a lack of trust in God. We don't look to our Heavenly Father, who loves to give good gifts to His children. Instead, we're basically saying, God is insufficient. He doesn't provide adequately. If I don't help myself, no one will. Taking advantage of others also ruins relationships. People notice when they're used or abused. No one likes that. It brings ill will, hurt, disappointment, anger, and bitterness. But Laban is oblivious of that at this point in time. He wants to get rich and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead in life. Our text shows that when Jacob's seven years of service are up, Laban doesn't make arrangements for a wedding feast. Jacob has to go to him and remind him, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Normally, a wedding involved processions to and from the bride's house, the reading of marriage vows, and a large banquet attended by family and neighbors. The first day ended with the bridegroom wrapping his cloak around his bride and taking her into the nuptial chamber where the marriage was consummated. Our text says that Laban gathered the people of that place and organized a feast. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Jacob didn't notice the switch. The bride was veiled. The night was dark. He was probably slightly intoxicated. Yet in the morning, what a surprise. Behold, there was Leah. Jacob has been duped. He served for seven years for Rachel, whom he loved. But instead, he spent his wedding night and consummated his marriage with Leah. You can only imagine Jacob's shock. Jacob, 
who deceived his father who had weak eyes, is now given the older daughter who has weak eyes as his wife. Jacob, the manipulator and deceiver, receives a taste back of his own medicine. Jacob had pretended to be his older brother Esau. And the trick worked because his father Isaac was blind and drank wine. Now Leah has pretended to be her younger sister. And the deception worked because Jacob was blind in the dark night and drank wine. Jacob knows that Laban has instigated this deception. He confronts Laban. He says, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban simply tells him, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You, Jacob, may have grabbed the blessing of the firstborn from Esau, but in our country we don't place the younger before the firstborn. What can Jacob say? He's guilty of exactly the same kind of deceit and manipulation Laban was guilty of. Any words he speaks against Laban will really be against himself, for he was guilty of the same deception. Jacob has been outfoxed by Uncle Laban. Laban comes up with a plan by which they can both still get what they want. He suggests that they continue the wedding feast for the rest of the week. Then Laban will hold another feast and also give Jacob Rachel as wife. Yet the catch is that Jacob will have to agree to serve him for another seven years. Unlike the earlier seven years, these years did not fly like a few days for Jacob. They are long, difficult years. His father-in-law has become his adversary. And there was tension in his household having two wives. Jacob has made a real mess of his life. It seems like the Lord has forsaken him. And what about Leah, beloved? Have you considered her plight? Even though she was Laban's own daughter, he used her in order to secure seven more years of labor from Jacob. When Jacob later asked his wives to come with him to return to Canaan, they spoke about their attitude toward their father. They said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. Leah was not truly loved by her father. She was sold into a loveless marriage so he could get rich. Our text says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Her plight worsened when her father gave her to Jacob in marriage. Now she had to deal with something far worse than being single. Far worse than being an, an unattractive old maid. 
She's condemned to live the rest of her life with a husband who did not love her. This hurts her deeply in ways that we may not be able to understand. Comes out in our text when she begins to bear children. She gives them names that reflect her state. She calls her firstborn Reuben, saying, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. The second son she called Simeon, saying, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. She called her third son Levi, saying, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Our text makes clear how much Leah longed for love. On the one hand, we say that's natural. But on the other hand, she's placing her ultimate hopes and desires in the wrong place. Beloved, it's wrong to make your spouse or your family your ultimate hope. Jacob did that thinking that if he had Rachel, he would finally receive some consolation in life. Everything had gone wrong for him. His life sucked. But he thinks that if he had this gorgeous girl as wife, all would be okay. Leah was forced into a loveless marriage. She thinks that if only Jacob would love her, it would give her life meaning and significance. She sees having children as a way to earn her husband's love, a way of being considered a worthwhile person. Both Jacob and Leah make an idol out of marriage and family. Beloved, if you make your husband or wife or your children the ultimate source of your happiness, You'll destroy them, or they will destroy you. There is no human being that can live up to those kind of expectations. If your life depends on the acceptance and love of others, what happens if they have a bad day, where they don't show you that love or acceptance? What happens if your spouse or children cannot fulfill your needs? What happens if they have their own struggles, if they're dealing with depression, if they cannot fulfill your expectations? We cannot build our lives on the love and acceptance of others. Jesus Christ is the only one on whom our life can be founded. We deal with this in our second point. And it will consider God's work of blessing us. We mentioned earlier that God is not mentioned in the first 30 verses of Genesis 29. We just read about Laban and Jacob and Leah, each striving for happiness in their own way. Yet this doesn't mean that God is absent from the events that happen in Genesis 29. The chapter begins with Jacob traveling from Bethel and says he came to the land of the people of the east. Despite being alone and traveling along often dangerous roads, the Lord blesses Jacob and brings him to the land of his forefathers. 
Jacob comes to a well in the field. The way the story is told, it seems like he just happens to run into shepherds from Haran who knew his mother's brother Laban. And then Rachel, Laban's daughter, also just happens to come along. Doesn't the story remind you of another story in Genesis? Remember when Abraham sent his trusted servant to Haran to find a wife for Isaac? The Lord led that servant to a well where shepherds watered their flocks. He prayed, Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And before he had finished speaking, behold, there was Rebekah. We don't read of Jacob praying for the Lord's blessing on his journey. Or of him seeking guidance from the Lord about whom to marry. But the Lord did lead Jacob to this well where shepherds also watered their flocks. He brought Rachel, who was a shepherdess, to this well at this precise time. She runs home to tell her father Laban, and he runs to the well and welcomes Jacob to come home with them. Beloved, all the events in our text didn't just happen. The Lord was guiding and directing Jacob's life so he could fulfill the wonderful blessings he had made to him at Bethel. The Lord's work in our text is also explicit. The first time we read of the Lord in Genesis 29 is in verse 31. It tells us, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Here we see the Lord doing what he often does. The Lord chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the lowly and despised things, even the things that are not, to shame the things that are. God is attracted to unattractive people, to those who are weak and needy, to those crying out to him. Our text ends with the Lord blessing Leah with four sons. We've noted that in naming the first three sons, Leah reveals the state of her heart. In Reuben and Simeon's names, Leah confessed that the Lord had seen her affliction and heard how she was hated and how she hoped that through bearing children, her husband would come to love her. In Levi's name, she says that this time her husband would be attached to her. In naming her sons, Leah shows forth her desperate craving for her husband's love and attention. But she didn't get it from him. With the birth of her fourth son, something changes. Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Leah has learned something very important. At least for a little while, she stops looking to her husband 
as the person who can give her life meaning and purpose. Instead, she praises God for his mercy in showing her love by granting her children. Jacob may not have paid much attention to her, but God surely did. You see, beloved, the Lord is the true bridegroom. When he saw that Leah was not really loved and did not really have a husband, he became her husband. The Lord, our covenant God, relates to us in different ways. He is the shepherd and we are his sheep. That image speaks of his tender, loving care over us. The Lord is the king, and we are his servants. That image speaks of God's majestic power and glory, and our call to worship him. God is also the bridegroom, and we are his bride. He wants a personal, intimate relationship with us. He wants us to know that even if we're not really very lovable, He loves us with a deep and an abiding love. It's in Him and only in Him that we can find true meaning and purpose in our lives. Beloved, it is striking that Leah finds her security in the Lord and as she praises him at the birth of Judah. Who was Judah? At the time, he was not all that important. The fourth son of the unloved woman. But Judah has a special place in redemptive history. In Genesis 49, we read of Jacob blessing his sons. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is given the blessing of the firstborn son, promised dominion over his brothers. But that's not all. Jacob says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a messianic promise through which the Lord makes clear that Jesus Christ will be born of Judah's line, that it's through him that all the families of the earth would be blessed. So, beloved, we see that even though God's name is hardly mentioned in Genesis 29, he was active in blessing his people. Laban, Jacob, and Leah were each striving for their own success and happiness. They made a complete mess of their lives. Yet God is faithful in fulfilling his promises. Jacob came to Haran alone, a penniless wanderer. Yet God blesses him with a family, and he begins to fulfill his promise of making Jacob into a great nation through the birth of four sons. God opens the way for the coming of 
his son, the promised Messiah, through whom his blessings would come on all nations. For many of us, it's not hard to identify with the lives of Laban, Jacob, and Leah. Our human inclination is to seek our life and well-being in success, in riches, in the acceptance and love of others. Neither the greatest riches this world has to offer, nor the devoted love of any other human being, can fill the true longing and desires of your heart. Jesus Christ is the true bridegroom, the one who loved us so much that he sacrificed his life for us. Seek your life in him alone. Find comfort, peace, joy, and hope in him. Christ only is true life. To know him is to live the more abundant life that earth can never give. May we find meaning and purpose for our lives in him alone. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from hymn 79.